0: Well, i say this every time but this is one of my favorite things i get to do Um, forgive me for being a male can't help that but uh, that's where we are i wanted to and i know you're maybe choosing between eating pie and taking notes go with the pie until uh until you can i I don't know if sylvia's mentioned this this is the 10th growing in grace luncheon that we've done and I, I looked at my little chart that I keep track of things, and that was kind of shocking to me. Um, I only remember about three of them, so <laughs> that was that was concerning to me as well. What I want to talk about this morning is something that's been on my heart, something that's been kind of percolating in my own kind of soul for a while um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, in years to come it becomes something i 'm enamored with enough to maybe write a book about it and and that is the idea of just sanctification in general, because we talk about that, and um, but very often the, the step, uh, the steps to sanctification are basically hear the truth, change your life, and I'm I'm always wondering, well, what comes in between? Because that's really hard to do. If we could all do that, we would do it instantly. If we if we had that sort of uh, discipline, then this wouldn't be an, an issue. Sanctification is often ignored, not just in mainstream evangelicalism, uh, where, where the goal of a preacher is to make everybody feel good. So it's ignored there, but it's also even ignored sometimes in reform circles, where we want to be so heavy in theology, so heavy in truth, so heavy in soteriology in particular, that we forget that there's a life to be lived. And the scriptures are not here to be a theology book. They're here to teach us how to be like Christ. And so where do you find that balance? And so I want to spend a little time this morning in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll look at verses 31 and 32. Again, if you're eating pie, I will be reading it to you. So that's fine. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32 is going to be our home base. We won't stay exclusively in that text. But it really forms the rationale for everything else we'll do. And so... Like I said, this is something that's burning in my heart. I I think I could do this in about 12 messages. We're going to try and do it in the next 45 or 50 minutes or so. But I just want to share an idea with you and see what you think. I have the little Fox News app, and sometimes uh, if I'm undisciplined in the morning, that's the first thing I read, what I should be reading is my Bible first, but reach over and grab my phone and Fox News pops up. And one of the things that I've noticed, and you've noticed this as well, that the world, particularly when we talk about the the industry of women's self-help, that's a multi-billion dollar industry. That makes millions of dollars every day. The world of women's self-help is obsessed with one concept, which dominates all their thinking, all their ideology, and that is the concept of self-love. The unbelieving world of women sees self-love as the goal of all humanity. There's no concern for righteousness, no no thought about sin. And in the name of self-love, the world tells us to be proud of ourselves. And that's not entirely wrong. We're not to walk around uh, denigrating ourselves all the time. But here's how we're to evaluate ourselves. We look in the mirror And say, this is the standard of all that is good. Oh, look, I meet the standard of all that is good. Therefore, I love myself. Where there's no actual real outside standards, it's just I'm going to love myself because it's me. I'm okay because it's me. But more importantly... According to these sources, we should evaluate ourselves according to the standards set forth by radical feminism, by women's magazines and websites, and the prevailing so-called progressive thought, which is actually extremely regressive, because they're always so right and always so on target, that the way to evaluate ourselves is to, is to put our finger in the wind and see what most people think, and that's now what's right. But I think that's really the opposite of what the Bible teaches about self-examination. The very first self-examination we are to perform concerns our standing before God. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And then, once you have evaluated yourself as to salvation, oh, the, the world of unbelieving women would love this one. We are, according to Scripture, to judge ourselves. I'm not making that word up. That's the word in the Bible. Not according to a worldly standard, but according to the standard of Scripture. To judge yourself is not what the world would say. It's not to disparage yourself. It's not to look in the mirror and say, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. It's not to to denigrate yourself. First, we have to be accurate in God's grace toward us. You are made in the image of God. You are the greatest of all creations, and some would argue uh, that God improved upon the creation of the male by saying, let's complete this picture with the female. There's some good arguments for that. You are, as a saved person, the elect of God in salvation. You've been justified by Christ's righteousness, that you are a sinner, but your sin debt owed to God has been paid by the death of Christ. And you are particularly made as a woman, To be the delight and the joy to those all around you. I've said it very often that if the Church of Jesus Christ was just made up of men, I'd quit. How boring and how colorless and how difficult that would be. What we're talking about when we say judging ourselves, this isn't self self self-loathing. There's no place for that in the Christian life. Being made in the image of God, being the chosen of God as the elect leaves out self-loathing. That's not okay. Now, the Lord at times may humble you tremendously through your circumstances. I'm going to preach a whole sermon on that tomorrow morning. But in reality, because of Christ's work for us, he has given us what it means to follow him. What does it mean? Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him self-love himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's not what it says. What does it say? Deny himself. Deny herself. But let's just use the world's terminology for a moment. Let's use the term self-love. What's the most loving thing you can do for yourself? The most loving thing you can do for yourself is to deny yourself and look toward Christ's likeness. For example, when Stephen was being stoned to death, he didn't cry out, I just need to love myself more. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. And he asked for forgiveness for his executioner's that had nothing to do with self-love. That had to do with Christ's likeness. At that final moment in his life, Stephen was so like Christ that the God of the universe gave Stephen a precious gift and that was to be able to see through the heavens to the very throne room of God to see Jesus Christ himself standing ready to welcome him home. Self-love has no place. And so what I want to do this morning is address what I'm calling the art of spiritual self-examination. The art of spiritual self-examination, and this is more art than science because like art, there's flexibility, there's creativity involved. It is a self-designed project which you tailor to your own particular needs. And again, this is the first time I'm kind of rolling out this idea, so you'll be my, my kind of guinea pigs here to tell me if this is useful in your life. I'd be curious to hear from you in coming months talking about the idea of spiritual self-examination, it has to happen within the proper context. If we just start talking about your sin and your weaknesses and your vulnerability, the knee-jerk reaction is, what happened to grace and now we've turned into legalists? But here are the facts. If you've repented of your sin, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've proclaimed your eternal allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus, then you are, according to Scripture, a new creation— a child of the living God, a sibling of Jesus Christ, a fellow heir with Jesus Christ, and a possessor of a certain heavenly inheritance. You have all those things. Those are the facts. And therefore, as a new creation who is a child of the living God, a sibling of Jesus Christ, a fellow heir with Christ, a possessor of certain heavenly inheritances, 1 John 3 3 says, Everyone who thus hopes in him, listen to this, purifies himself as he is pure. What is that? That's the idea of getting getting ready to meet Jesus. That's what that is. And so I'd like to challenge all of us to go beyond just listening to sermons, expecting that the preached Word of God does all the work for you, because the best sermons are the ones that call you to action. A sermon that doesn't call you to action is a lecture. I want to walk you through a four-step process of self-examination. And we'll use 1 Corinthians 11, 31, and 32 as our home base. Step one, establish the need. Establish the need. If you don't think there's a need for self-examination, then this message is going to fall flat and you won't invite me back and nobody will be happy about that. So we need to establish the need for self-examination. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has given the church at Corinth reminders and instructions concerning the receiving of the Lord's Supper, the regular worship through communion. But he issues a warning. Verse 27, going back just a bit, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discernment discerning the body, eats and drinks, what? Judgment on himself. Now, some take this as self-examination as to whether you're actually a Christian or not, and that the unbeliever taking the Lord's table will incur God's wrath. I think that's a really weak argument because God's wrath comes upon the unbeliever because they didn't repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Taking the cup and the bread of communion as an unbeliever is the least of their worries. It's also weak because verse 32 is going to confirm that Paul is speaking of Christians taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. So what was one of their issues that precipitated Paul's warning, that brought this warning about back in verse 17? But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So at least one of their issues was that there were people refusing to get along, refusing to forgive, refusing to love. And he goes on to rebuke the church for being respecters of men, of of treating those with much as being better than those with little. And so there's unresolved and unrepented conflict. There's favoritism shown in the worst way. And so the Apostle Paul reinforces the absolute seriousness of the Lord's table. That partaking in the Lord's table is a, a proclamation that I am remembering the grace and the mercy that's come upon me through the death of Christ. And so Paul is warning here that to take the Lord's table in the middle of not showing that same grace and mercy to others while still embittered against others, while still looking down on others, that's a perilous undertaking. That's dangerous. How dangerous is it? Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Whoa. We thought, oh, that's the God of the Old Testament. He does that stuff. In the New Testament, nobody gets punished for anything. It's not true. The fatherly discipline of the Lord is serious business, and it illustrates just how gravely sincere we're to be when remembering Christ and the great forgiveness that he's extended to us by his own death. So what's the believer to do? How do we receive the Lord's table in a worthy manner? Well, verses 31 and 32 give the answer, and they form the foundation of our thoughts this morning. Verse 31, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Anybody catch a theme in those two verses? Judged, judged, judged. Same Greek word, condemned. Four times. Now, in English, we have those, the three uses of the word judged, and then in Greek, the, the fourth with condemned. And so right up front, we can see that's a major issue here. And we can see that the purpose of self-examination in this context is to come to the Lord's table with a prepared heart, which, by the way, means that one of the purposes of the Lord's table is to afford an opportunity for self-examination. Does that make sense? That, that it's a stopping point. It's a punctuation point. To say, hang on a minute, what sin am I hanging on to? What what have I refused to repent of? And so no one can argue that Christian liberty or that God's grace means we don't examine ourselves. That, That argument falls flat. But we also notice that Paul softens his tone. He's not pointing a finger. He says, if we judged ourselves. He's saying, I'm right there with you. I have to do that as well. I have to judge myself. Now, what I want to do to explain those two verses to you is kind of give you the big picture interpretation and then confirm that interpretation with a couple of details. What Paul is basically saying here is that if a Christian uses the Lord's table as an opportunity to examine himself, then God will not judge that Christian. Not judgment in the sense of receiving the wrath of God. That's not for us, but judgment in the sense of fatherly discipline. And in verse 32, Paul is saying that even if we fail to judge ourselves, when we are judged, when we are disciplined by the Lord, this discipline is instead of condemnation given to non-believers. That's one of the major reasons, by the way, I think Paul's warning earlier to not take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. That's given to Christians, not non-Christians, because he says that those who are being disciplined are not condemned with the world. And so the judgment of the Lord here, this isn't punishment unto destruction. It's a form of fatherly discipline to bring the child of God to repentance as a child of God. We're not condemned with the world. We're simply disciplined by our Father who's vitally concerned for our Christ-likeness. And this is part of God's preservation for the saints, preservation of the saints. He, He doesn't just leave us to our own devices. As a matter of fact, He'll take discipline even to the point of taking the Christian home. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but either you or your husbands hopefully have on occasion issued spankings to your little ones. And if you have issued a spanking in the correct manner, according to uh, the book of Proverbs, have you ever seen that moment on the, the little one's face? It's about 30 seconds of absolute silence. It's whack and then And you know what's coming next, right? Then they take a breath, and then you plug your ears because the scream is coming. What is that moment that, that right there, that is the shock that I can't believe you just did that. I wonder how many believers have arrived in heaven and had their heavenly father say, welcome home, but you were so blowing it on earth I had to bring you home. I don't want that to be me. But that is fatherly discipline and praise the Lord that we go home anyway. But I want to give you a couple details here to help us put some meat on this basic interpretation. In Greek, the basic term, root term for judge is used four times in these two verses, but each one is a different verb form. And so it has four different nuances of meaning. I'm going to give you all four and then we'll come back to the one that really concerns us this morning. The first one, if we judged ourselves truly, that first one, this verb form of judge it has a it has a suffix added to it it's a, it's what's called an imperfect verb it means it's repeated it goes over and over again it's a habit and this particular form has a very specific meaning it means to make a distinction or to make a separation what is the distinction what's the separation what's the comparison we're making here well very simply We are distinguishing or comparing what we are compared to what we ought to be. That's the distinction. What we are compared to what we ought to be. This is the idea of viewing God's standard of behavior and comparing what we're doing to those standards. The second use, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. This is a slightly different form. This is a passive imperfect form. It means something that's happening to them. Not something that they're doing, but something's happening to them. This is God consistently providing discipline because some were not engaged in self-examination. And it becomes very clear here, by the way, that you have two choices. Examine yourself or God will examine you. And that's it. And then there's a third form, verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord... And you don't have to remember all this part, but that's a present passive participle, meaning when we are continually over and over again being judged. When we're in the middle of it, while it's happening, the fourth version here, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned. The same root word with the world. Now, this one's different. This is a completely different category. This verb form speaks of a final action. It's done. It's over. It is one time and thus it's rightly translated condemned, the Lord repeatedly disciplines the Christian in lieu of a final one-time judgment of the unbeliever. And so praise the Lord for discipline. Why is, why is this so important? Because he's already promised in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no what condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for our purposes, that first use, in the very first... Uh, part there, verse 31, that first use of judge is what we're concerned with. To distinguish, to separate, to compare what we're doing with what we ought to be doing. So what does it mean to judge ourselves? Well, it can speak of a specific sin that you know is a struggle for you. Or maybe that you know you're engaged in at this very moment. It can be bitterness. It can be unresolved anger at another it can be a, a specific difficult interaction where you know you blew it, you you overreacted. Maybe it's a pattern of behavior with which you struggle. Those things which are your weak points, your vulnerable points, the, the ones you know all too well, the ones you're so familiar with. Or worse, you've become blinded to because you aren't self-evaluating anymore. That's even worse. So to help establish the need for self-evaluation, let me just give you some examples. They're not unfamiliar to you, but the nature of sin is what we need continual reminders about. It would take too long to turn to all these passages, so I'm going to suggest you note these references, and hopefully you'll review these later, maybe tonight, even as you prepare for the Lord's Day. And we are receiving the Lord's table tomorrow, so this is uh, well-timed. But I want you to consider these examples. These are only examples of prayerful self-examination. I'm going to give you seven very quickly, but we could do more, and then we'll move on to some more practical ideas of what to do with these. And I'm just going to present these in forms of in the form of questions. Example number one, how are my thoughts toward others? How are my thoughts toward others, especially those closest to me? Am I working at believing the very best as 1 Corinthians 13, 7 tells me to do? Am I Working at consciously directing my thoughts toward that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, such as Philippians eight, four eight would have me do? Or do I tend toward un- being undisciplined, and listen to this, gossiping in my own heart? There's no place in the Bible that says the gossip is okay as long as nobody hears it. Here's another example. How is my speech toward others? How's my speech toward others? Am I practicing the gentle, quiet spirit of 1 Peter 3, 4? Am I watching my tone of voice, my demeanor, my phrasing, even as I watch the content of my speech? Am I thinking before I speak? You ever been around someone that you know they quit thinking about what they were saying 25 years ago? Because everything that comes out of their mouth is negative and spiky and venomous. And they've stopped self-examining a long time ago. Am I listening before I talk and genuinely hearing what someone has to say? Am I in the habit of telling tales? Gossip isn't just telling negative things about people. Gossip is telling positive things that you didn't have permission to spread. As a pastor, you know what I hear all the time? Pastor, we're going to have a baby, but don't tell anyone. When four of you do that, and I'm like the only human being on planet Earth who knows I have to say, okay, I'm going to watch what I say. I had to put duct tape over my own mouth because I want to tell. How about this question? How is my patience toward others? How's my patience toward others? I know I just put an arrow in all of our hearts when I said that. Am I humble enough to let others be on the same journey of sanctification that I'm on? Or am I prone to immediately assess and evaluate without really knowing someone or their situation? When I'm wronged or inconvenienced, do I immediately react sinfully out of a habit? Or worse, do I react sinfully out of out of habit and try to justify it? Speaking of reactions, here's a fourth example question. How is my trust in the Lord? How is my trust in the Lord? What in my life am I doing or saying that is more a response to fear and distrust? I'll tell you what, answering that question alone will, will dig deeply into your own soul, Where am I trying to make something happen that maybe is better dealt with in prayer? Here's another example question. Number five, how's my relationship building with those closest to me? How's my relationship building with those closest to me? Am I pursuing love with my husband or did I kind of give up on that 10 years ago? Am I waiting for him to do that? Listen, if you're waiting for your husbands to be the the glorious relational ones, you're going to wait the rest of your life. You may as well start. How about actively pursuing and individually tailoring relationships with my children, with my grandchildren? Those closest to me, that takes work. Some of you have grandchildren in in double digits, and I know that's hard. I know you have to work at that. Conversely, number six, how is my relationship building with those not as close to me? Maybe that's a little tougher. Paul commands in Romans twelve thirteen, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is a Greek word that means loving strangers. People that you don't know as well. Expanding your usual crowd and reaching out to others. Let me ask you a tender question. When you're with the body of Christ here at Grace Bible Church, do you sit with exactly the same people every single time such that everyone else around you knows you're part of a closed group? That's a tough thing. Mix it up a little bit. Tell that person that you, you're always with, you know, I think I could run over your cat and you would still love me, so I'm going to go talk to this person for a while. One more, and these are just examples. How is my personal pursuit of the Lord? How's my personal pursuit? Am I growing with a regular diet of personal time in the Word and in prayer? Am I nurturing my soul with attentive listening when I have the privilege of hearing preaching? I, I bring you greetings, by the way, from my wife. She couldn't be here this morning, but she said to say hello. Uh, our son Michael is in town, and she wanted to spend time with him. They're, they're, they don't have a lot of time together. But she uh, regularly reports to me, so far uh, this year, she's listened to it somewhere in the vicinity of 250 sermons. That's just what she does. And I see the fruit of that in her life. I see the fruit of that in my life. Am I learning and growing proactively or... Am I trying to coast off that good growth I had in 2012? The last words of the Apostle Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So those are just examples. I I wanted to spend about half of our time this morning establishing the need to decide I'm going to proactively grow in the Lord. Let me give you a second step now in the art of self-examination and we'll go a little bit faster. The second step is escape the trap. Escape the trap. If you say, okay, you've convinced me. I think I do want to more proactively pursue self-examination for the glory of God and to diligently mature in my faith. Then very often, the the first instinct is to say, you know what? I think I'll take about 20 minutes and I think I'll think about this. And I'll even designate some time. Or worse, I'll say, I think I'm going to see how I feel about all of this. I'll just test my heart. I've had people tell me, you know, I'm not sure what to do here. I need to test my own heart. You know what I always tell them? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Testing your heart is like throwing a dart at the wall and then drawing a circle around it and saying, hey, look, I got a bullseye. It's backwards. Let me show you what the trap is. Turn back just a few chapters to 1 Corinthians 3. And in this letter, Paul is having to be very blunt with some difficult problems and difficult people. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh." For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. That is the hallmark of a man who's preaching after the offering has been taken. Because he's being blunt with him. And some of the more immature in the church at Corinth were apparently even calling Paul's character into question, calling his motives into question for speaking into their lives. And there are factions in the church that were developing. They were based in loyalty to men. Some were loyal to Paul, some to Apollos, some to Peter. And so Paul corrects them on how they ought to think about their spiritual leadership. Chapter 4, verse 1, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Leadership is to be faithful and, generally speaking, doing their duty. But Paul is about to tell him, listen, to put it bluntly, I don't work for you. I'm not concerned with what you think. My job is to please the master, not the church. So he's essentially going to say, it's not much to me what you think of me. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. But then... In fact, I do not even judge myself. And you say, now, wait a minute. You just confused the whole issue here. In chapter 11, Paul is telling everyone else to judge themselves. Well, which is it? Well, we have a fifth version of the Greek word for judge here. And this one has the specific idea of a cross-examination, a thorough study, an investigation. What Paul is saying is, Or let me ask you the question, is he saying, I'm telling you to judge yourselves, but I'm not going to live up to that standard? No, he's not saying that. He's saying that pure self-judgment, pure self-evaluation without the benefit of an outside objective source is useless. Verse four, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Some in the church were deciding that they knew Paul's heart. They knew his motives. They knew how Paul really stood before the Lord. Verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. In other words, the Corinthians were attempting to anticipate the Lord's verdict in Paul's life. But he says, You don't know my heart because I don't even know my heart. If I were to look in the mirror, and this is a typical male, we look in the mirror and in about four seconds we say, looks good to me, and we walk off. That's what typical self-examination is. So Paul has escaped the trap. What is the trap? Using his own feelings as a standard. He's escaped the trap. Just saying, I don't feel badly about something, that's an unreliable source of evaluation. In fact, some have called that Jedi theology. Listen to your feelings. That's not okay. If you interrogate yourself based on how you feel, you're going to miss all the evidence you really need to look at. In fact, in Scripture, a seared conscience, by definition, means that there may be a sin so entrenched in your habits that you don't sense conviction about it anymore. If you don't believe that someone can decide not to listen to their conscience I've witnessed it firsthand. I've, I've watched, and more than once, I've watched in counseling one spouse tell another, what you said really hurt me. It devastated me. And the other one says, well, I don't feel bad about it, so I don't think I did anything wrong. What's wrong with that? That's a seared conscience. So what do I do? What do I turn to for helpful self-evaluation? Well, that's our third step. We establish the need, escape the trap, Third step, now we get really practical, employ your resources. Employ your resources. I'm going to give you six of them. Now, the first one is yourself, but when surrounded with the other five, more, you'll be more honest. So the first resource is yourself, but again, surrounded by the others. And this isn't just a momentary, is there something I should be working on spiritually? No, I think I'm good. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking some time in prayer taking some time alone, maybe even with a journal, and asking some questions. What am I afraid of? What are my biggest fears, and how are they potentially impacting my habits and my behaviors? What sin do I already know I'm susceptible to? What are the ones I already know are a struggle for me? What type of situation is likely to evoke a massive emotional response. And so ask yourself questions. Here's a great prayer. If you were to keep a journal of self-evaluation, here's the prayer you would put at the top. Psalm 139, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's your prayer. So your first resource is yourself, but we have to move on to the others so that yourself isn't your only source. Second resource we'll call your scriptures. Your scriptures. I'll give you the short option and then the longer option. The, the short option is one that I've said probably a thousand times from this pulpit and we'll make it a thousand and one right now. The short option is utilize Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Because in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, that little short section basically covers the entire Christian life. It covers, I'm going to take a deep breath, Humility, patience, gentleness, love, spiritual unity, church functioning, respect for leaders, sound doctrine, loving confrontation, church membership, anger, stealing, work ethic, a godly tongue didn't make it. Kindness, forgiveness, sexual purity, time management, substance abuse, corporate worship, thankfulness, marriage, parenting, employee-employee relations, spiritual warfare, prayer, and gospel proclamation. In three chapters. That's the short version. Here's the long version, which I would recommend... Use the book of Proverbs, book of Song of Solomon, the book of James, and all of the New Testament epistle application sections. And if you've gone through BTI, you know what those are generally near the end in all of Paul's letters and more scattered around in Peter and in John. That's the longer option. Now, obviously, you can't do that in one sitting but you can make a plan to proactively work through these scriptures. I, I knew one lady who did this and she, here's how she took the challenge. She took her Bible and she actually photocopied every page that she wanted to use as an evaluation. And she got out a highlighter and began highlighting every time. Oh, that's one that speaks to my heart. Ooh, that's one that speaks to my heart. Oh, that's one that speaks to my heart. And by the time she went through Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Book of James, all the New Testament epistle application sections, she could quickly point out, I know where my areas of weaknesses are because I saw the same themes over and over and over again. So you have yourself, you have your scriptures. Let me give you a third resource, and that is your suffering. Your suffering. I'm not absolutely convinced that any period of suffering in your life has a neatly packaged single lesson that the lord is trying to teach you i think he's way more efficient than to just make you suffer once for just one lesson and i've done a lot of thinking and preaching and writing on suffering and so it's something that's been on my mind a lot i think frankly much of the change that the lord effects in your life through suffering is unseen and it might even be so subtle that you don't see it for a while but you certainly can pray this you can pray lord what would you have me learn from this time? What what can I know to have me grow? And I think about Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It's a Hebrew word that means your ways, your laws. I might learn who you are. And so you use a time of suffering. How do you use it? Either one you're experiencing now or one you've experienced in the past to honestly evaluate how you responded, because how you responded, it, it reflects who you really are and where you are. Did you panic? Did you panic? I've panicked. I know what it is to panic. I know what it is to receive news and immediately break out into a sweat and have my heart rate go to 100,000. I know what that is. So if you panicked, then learn to proactively calm yourself in the Lord. Did you get angry? Then learn to humble yourself before the sovereignty of God. Many years ago, I was in a really difficult situation and I complained to a pastor friend of mine. I said, man, I just, this makes me mad. And he said, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Yes. Well, then God did this to you. Do you want to be mad at him? No, I'm sorry. And that was it. Did you try to suppress your emotion? I'm just going to gut my way through this. Well, then your lesson is learn that weeping before the Lord is normal and it's modeled in the Psalms. Did you try to suffer alone? Did you bury and carry this burden all by yourself? Learn that the body of Christ is there to bear one another's burdens. So so use your suffering. Look back. It has been my experience, both in my own life and in the life of many others that I've counseled, that when you don't learn something from suffering, the Lord tends to repeat it until you do learn. Let me give you a fourth resource, and this is the one that may get me thrown out of here. Your spouse. Your spouse. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And the fact is, your husband knows you better than anyone on earth, but most of them are afraid to point out spiritual blind, blind spots couple of reasons for this. It's easier not to because us men, we're we're naturally passive. You know, why do I want to start something? Everything's peaceful now. I'm just going to push play. Maybe the other reason is that they tried in the past and it didn't go so well. And so we we may not be super smart, but we're smart enough to go, you know, if I put my hand on a hot burner, I'm not going to do that again. And so after convincing your husband that this isn't a trick of some sort, maybe have the courage to ask him, what he's seen with your walk in the Lord and in your life that maybe, that maybe you're not seeing. That takes, that takes courage, and I would give you several cautions. First, get his commitment to be gentle and to be choosy. He doesn't need to present you a hardbound book with all the things that you need to change. Now you feel hopeless, and you're more likely to respond badly with that book at that point. Second caution, assure him it isn't a trick to open the door to tell him a thing or two that you genuinely just want to grow in the Lord. And third, I can almost guarantee that one or two things he pokes will be tender, and you might be tempted to clarify and justify, but just listen. And I know, look, I talk to enough of you to know that you might be spiritually miles ahead of your own husband, and I understand that sometimes that's the reality. But he still knows you better than anyone, and he can give you insights that would be useful to you if you choose to avail yourselves of them. Yourself, your scriptures, your suffering, your spouse. Let me give you another resource. Your sisters. Your sisters in Christ. This, this is absolutely the spirit of Titus 2, 3 and five, three through 5. The older women are to teach the younger women. And there's a list there of the things they're to teach. But it doesn't have to just be older women to younger women. It, whatever stage of life you're in, be willing to be a little vulnerable to another woman. And yes, I know that's scary. But help one another. Confess sins to one another. That's why, by the way, in a church where the culture of gossip has taken over, one-to-one discipleship dies. Because I can't trust anybody with the deepest secrets of my own heart. And so you have to be trustworthy. Don't go to another woman to tell her how terrible your husband is. Go to another woman to ask her to help you be a godlier wife, despite how terrible your husband might be. We think of the two women in the Bible immortalized for their sinful decision to fight with one another instead of helping one another. The infamous Euodia and Syntyche of the Philippian church, they're commemorated, but they're not celebrated. In Philippians 4, the apostle Paul urged a particular brother, it's translated in the ESV, a true companion, but it's it's really a, a proper name, a brother named Susagos, or in English, Sisychus, He said, come alongside them, counsel them, bring them to agreement. Why is this so important? Paul was so grieved about these two women. He said that one time they, quote, labored side by side for the gospel with Paul. In Philippians 4, 3, and he's commanding them to get close once again, to be helpful sisters, not hateful sisters. There are things that you can help one another with that your husband can't help you with. There are things you can help one another with that you can't help yourself with. You need each other. You need each other. And a church in which the sisters will reach out to the sisters is strong and is vital. Let me give you one more resource your spiritual leaders. Yourself, your scriptures, your suffering, your spouse, your sisters, and your spiritual leaders. We have small group leaders, you have elders, we have pastors. Women's ministry leaders, just at Grace Bible Church alone, you have a wealth of experienced, mature leadership. A church is in a sad state when there's nobody to turn to, but that's not the case here. You have those to turn to. And frankly, one of the fastest pathways to spiritual growth is very simple. Confess a sinful pattern to one in leadership and say, what should I do? What should I do? This is much of the reason that they exist. The primary job of those in spiritual leadership First Peter 5, 2, speaking specifically of elders, but we can broaden this to anyone in spiritual leadership. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, to shepherd has five basic meanings, and you don't have to remember this. I'm just trying to point this out to you. To tend, to herd, to feed, to protect, and to nourish. You might need tending. That you just need prayer and encouragement. Sometimes somebody will come to me and they'll 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 outline a problem and I'll ask, Well, what do you need? I don't need anything, I just need you to pray for me. Okay, you need to be tended. You might need hurting. Stop going in that direction and start going in this direction. You might need feeding. Here's what the Bible says about this particular issue or problem. You might need protecting. Here's what's going to happen in all likelihood if you don't deal with this issue or with this sin. Or you might need nourishing. Here are three Bible verses to memorize, and I want you to pray about this issue for 15 minutes a day. That simple. I've been very pleasantly surprised at Grace Bible Church, very different than many churches, to have even quick conversations with both men and women, which end with an exhortation and a commitment, with no hesitation. The conversation goes something like this. Steve, I'm consistently sharp-tongued with my husband. What should I do? My job, I say, repent to him, memorize Proverbs 15:1, 1, 1 Peter 3, 4, and recite them 10 times a day for the next month. Done. You know what that does? That accelerates spiritual growth massively. That's a quick pathway to self-evaluation. So you have all these rich resources now to employ. Our four-step plan for spiritual examination. Establish the need. Escape the trap. Employ your resources. So finally now we can embark on change. Embark on change. You're not going to accomplish complete other sanctification in one shot. That's not going to happen. You're not going to go home and have the ultimate confession and prayer time of all time. And wake up tomorrow like Christ. And So here's how to make this more practical. After going through especially the employing your resources step, pick one or maybe two specific areas of growth which have now become very, very clear to you, this is where I need to focus. And if you so desire, this is the time of the year, by the way, that you could use our cultural practice of New Year's resolutions and maybe make one or two resolutions that actually matter and have real spiritual value. So let me give you a few examples of these sorts of Specific areas or resolutions, we might call them. If you were to choose as your spiritual goal, I will proactively work on my thoughts about others. I will proactively work on my thoughts about others. Now, with the information you're armed with from Scripture and from talking to others, you would put together some tangible things to do that realign your heart and and refine your habits. Let me just give you a sample list here. I will start a prayer list for those I tend to think negatively about. Don't share that list with them. Uh, However, if you are the recipient of 10 people telling you you're on my prayer list now, maybe you should do a self-evaluation in your relationship patterns. I will prayerfully identify and record what sin is really behind my negative thoughts. What's really behind it? Why do I seem to not like half the people around me? Oh, all the people I don't like have more money than I do. That's jealousy. Oh, all the people around me seem more patient than I am. That's jealousy. Oh, all the people around me seem to not have the problems that I have. That's fear. What is really behind it? I will memorize Philippians four eight, which tells me how to think, and I'll recite this every time I pray for those on on my list. I'll communicate my thankfulness to those people. Again, probably best not to tell them why. I'll repent to anyone that I know in my heart I've treated with coldness and with distance, and I'm going to change the way I I respond to them. I will pursue getting to know them better. Here's a tough one. I'll ask my husband to point out when I'm speaking negatively about others because that reflects my thoughts that's just under proactively working on thoughts you see what i mean about putting together a plan something you're actually doing let me give you another example if you were to choose as your spiritual goal i will more actively guard my tongue i'll more actively guard my tongue by the way if you guard your thoughts you won't have to guard your tongue anymore i will memorize several verses from proverbs about the wise use of the tongue there's not many about 200 million that's it I will prayerfully identify and record what sin is really behind the negative use of my tongue. Is it impatience? Is it arrogance? Is it power and control? I'm going to use my tongue to make somebody feel so bad that I can stay in control of this engagement, this relationship. I will read James chapter three once a week for the next year until I'm entrenched with the idea that the tongue is a fire and with it entire forests are set on fire. I'll pray specifically about my tongue in a special prayer time every week for a year. And I'll ask for genuine feedback and accountability from a couple of people closest to me. That for the year 2020, I need you, you, and you. Be honest with me. Tell me when you hear me being anything less than gracious and with seasoned salt in my speech. How about this example? If you were to choose as your spiritual goal, I will live more by faith and less by fear. I will live more by faith and less by fear. It always breaks my heart to have someone sit in my office and have them speaking of an issue that causes fear and to literally see them shaking. And I say, hang on, You're, you're not in danger. You're just, the only danger in my office is that a book might fall off the shelf and hit you on the head. That's the only danger in my office. And yet fear has so gripped them that literally there's a physical, a visceral reaction. So what do we do with this? Well, I will memorize several verses about trusting the Lord. I'll identify and record what's behind my fear. What am I afraid of losing? What do I believe God can't handle? I'll read a psalm a day for a whole year. I'll spend one hour in prayer every week, pouring out every fear before God until I have nothing left to say. And I'll let others know that I'm struggling with fear. So after doing the first three steps in spiritual self-examination, now you're ready for action. Now you're ready to tackle something that will literally change your life. And you're not just waiting around anymore for something to happen. And by the way, this applies to every area of life. All the self-help gurus on, uh, on planet Earth, they, they talk about everything from self-esteem to weight loss to self-image and all of that stuff. Everything is Spiritual. Everything boils down to what what is the sin issue I need to deal with. I want to give you a recommendation. It's an old book, but so very, very useful. It's so old it was done on a typewriter, but it's timeless. I would encourage you to get a copy of Wayne Mack's book, M-A-C-K, and the book is A Homework Manual for Biblical Living. A Homework Manual for Biblical Living. It's 11 bucks on Amazon. Again, it's on a typewriter, but it's timeless. All you do is you look in the table of contents, you pick the issue you want to deal with, and you turn to those pages, and there's assignments. There's things to do to bolster your own heart. By the way, there's a separate, specific book to deal with marriage and family by the same author. Well, Paul was not the only apostle to urge self-examination. Listen to Peter, and then we'll be done. Second Peter 1, 5 through 8, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's be proactive to press on together for Christ's likeness, unless you think that I'm picking on you, the men are going to hear the same thing very soon, because we want to be Christ-like together. Amen. Let's pray for just a moment. Thank you, Father, for these precious ones here. Thank you for them taking time out of a a, a, a precious weekend day to come and to fellowship together to hear the word of God. And I pray that something today has provoked. Their hearts, just as my heart was provoked in preparing this, Lord, I, I'm, I'm inspired by your word. I'm inspired to examine myself and to be more like Christ and to do so on purpose. I pray for every woman here, first, Lord, that they would know you, that Christ is their Lord and Savior. But secondly, Lord, that we would not wait around for maturity. We would not wait for magical things to happen to suddenly make us like Christ, but we would determine in our hearts to pursue the very likeness and the very image of Christ so that we might purify ourselves as he himself is pure. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.